Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello. Today I'm joined by Matthew Hodson, the executive director of AIDS Map, a HIV activist and an underwear model. So he tells me. We're going to talk shagging, activism, and what happened the first time he went to a gay nightclub aged 15. And it was the most uncomfortable evening in the theatre I have ever experienced. And I've, I've seen Andrew Lloyd Webber shows. This is Probably True, stories of queer life and even queerer sex. Please be aware that this podcast contains strong language and adult themes. It would be boring without them. When I first told my mother I was gay, the first thing she said to me was, well, I expect you'll get AIDS and die then. Wow. Which sounds like a pretty mean thing to say. But to be fair to her, she had been working as an occupational therapist. She had lots of gay clients and they all had HIV and she watched a lot of them die. So that was her experience of what being gay was about. But actually, I've been gay for longer than HIV has been a part of my life. So I was gay so long ago that I remember thinking, well, at least I don't have to wear condoms. I'm going to tell the story about the first time I had consensual gay sex. Ooh. Yeah, I was 15. Scandal. (laughs) I was just precocious. I was just precocious in lots of weird ways. And I was dating this girl. Uh, Her name was Alexia, and she was really beautiful. She looked like Britannia from the side. She had this big, imperious nose. And I was completely besotted by her. One time she said to me, do you know that I'm bisexual? And I said, oh, yeah, so am I. My voice hadn't broken at that point. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, really? What have you done about it? And I was like, well, nothing yet. I filled in the forms, but that's as far as I've got. Well, exactly. I hadn't really made good on it, and I felt like I needed to. So she went off on holiday with her girl that she was seeing, and I thought, it's about time I got myself some of that gay sex that everyone's talking about. I mean, it wasn't just in the days before Grinder and Scrap. I mean, it was in the days before the internet. So there was no easy way of just like kind of, you know, dialing up a man to come along and rid me of my virginity. So I bought a copy of the Listings magazine, Time Out, and I looked, you know, in the privacy of my bedroom, I looked up the gay listings. I saw that there was this club called Heaven. I thought, oh, so I read what it said about that. And it said, cruisy, which I assumed meant men dressed as sailors. And it said it was, uh, you know, full of clones. And I thought that meant people who looked like David Bowie. So I was all up for that as well. <laughs> um, and it opened at nine. So five to nine, I was, I would say I was standing in the queue, but there obviously was no queue. I was just standing out there waiting for the doors to open and hoping that no one from my school would go past and recognize me because that would be incredibly embarrassing. Anyway, I was a bit concerned that I might not get in because, you know, being 15, I wasn't like particularly elderly looking for my age either, but I got in fine and that wasn't the problem. And soon the place started to fill up. Bear in mind that like there was like no representation of 
gay people on TV at this point. I mean, there was a few camp characters, like uh, there was a character in a terrible sitcom called Are You Being Served? called uh, Mr. Humphreys. So I was expecting a, you know, kind of a swish of homosexuals to be <laughs> in the club. So imagine my delight when I found out what a clone was, because a clone, of course, in those days was someone pretty much with a moustache, probably a check shirt, if they could manage it, a hairy chest. Sounds very hipster. Oh, I mean, you know, hipsters, I'm so grateful. I mean, because <laughs> it like it's like my youth coming, pouring back and splattering all over my face. I mean, it's wonderful. I was there and I was nervous. I was like thinking, oh, no one's going to want to talk to me because I'm so young. How little I knew. <laughs> um, I met this guy. Um, his name was John Cox. He was a photographer. He was an American photographer. He was over in London on an assignment. And he said, oh, do you want to come back to my hotel? And I was like, yes, that will be the gay sex that I've been so eager to be having. One sex, please. Thank you. So he, we went back to his hotel, which was the Sheraton Park Tower. Ooh. Uh, I know, fancy. You did well. I'm classy bird, me. So we went back to his hotel and we did the gay sex, you know, which was, was right, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I probably wasn't that good at it at the time, but, you know, it was my first time. So I felt more like I'd kind of unencumbered myself of my virginity, which I kind of felt like it was a good thing. It was okay. Anyway, because back in those days, you know, it was very rare for people to be open about their sexuality in a work environment. Obviously, his employers didn't know that he was gay. And he actually had an adjoining room with the person that he was on an assignment with. So I couldn't stay the night. He was a decent guy. And he said, well, you know, let me pay for your cab fare home. What a gentleman. Well, obviously, I had you know, satisfied him enormously, so he wanted to do, lavish me with gifts. <laughs> he, he, he said, well, how much does the cab fare back cost? And I had no idea because I was 15. I didn't normally travel around by cab. And if I did, I wouldn't pay for it. So he gave me £30. Bear in mind, this is 1983. <laughs> so, yes, I think the cab fare was about £4. <laughs> um, so I'm, I, I made a tidy little profit on my gay sexual debut. Well done. I know, but in a way. <laughs> and that was all good. And then the next week, I was at home watching television and a documentary came on. And it was a Horizon documentary called A Killer in the Village. And it was the first piece of television on the British TV about AIDS. It wasn't identified as HIV then. I think they were at that point calling it HTLV3. Obviously, the way the documentary was done, it was kind of a, had an assumption that the viewer would be a heterosexual person because gays don't do normal things. And it kind of seemed to be saying, it's okay because it seems to be confined to homosexuals and American homosexuals the worst kind. And of course, you know, there I was as a 15 year old boy having just had sex with an American man. I thought, finally got buggered. And I've also buggered my life now. But I didn't get HIV that time. I am now living with HIV, but that isn't how I got HIV. That was like my one sexual occasion, probably for about a year, year and a half before I had sex with another man. I had sex with women in the meantime. Gosh. I know. Did you tell Alexia when she came back off holiday? I did tell Alexia when she, when she came back from holiday. Was she impressed? I almost feel like she didn't take me as seriously as I took her. 
I don't think she really loved me back, and I suspect she never thinks of me now. <laughs> you should find her. Like, go go hang out, go have a coffee and catch up. Just, ta-da! Oh, no, I'd be far too intimidated. <laughs> so that next time I did have sex, oh, the story is, is too long, long and it doesn't really have a great punchline, but it was after a party, which was a party in the Boltons, which is this very exclusive part of, well, it's a kind of round Earl's Court, but very beautiful Georgian houses. And he owned the house, which used to belong to Rod Stewart's ex-manager. So he was like super rich. And I kind of knew of about four people from that party afterwards. I think that every single one of them died of AIDS. So that was when my mum said, well, you expect you're going to die of AIDS then. It was kind of that world in which I grew up and which I kind of came to terms with my sexuality. My first year at university was the year that the Iceberg and the Tombstone campaign was released. HIV and AIDS and death were very much associated with being gay. And I didn't think it was odd because it was the only community that I knew. So when I was diagnosed with HIV, which was many, many, many years later when I was 30, I felt like I couldn't tell my mum. I didn't think it would be helpful for me. I just kind of kept it inside. And I started working for gay men fighting AIDS, mainly doing campaigns, working with other men living with HIV. And I kind of felt like it'd be really helpful if I could be public and open about living with HIV. But it was scary and my mum didn't know and then a journalist called my mum up a journalist who I'd spoken to and outed me to my mum wow yeah it was it was well I found out about this I me and my mum went to the theatre together and it was the most uncomfortable evening in the theatre I have ever experienced and I've I've seen Andrew Lloyd Webber shows um yeah it but the thing was, I mean, it was awful. And my relationship with my mum was really terrible for quite a long time after that. But once she knew, I didn't have any reason not to tell anyone else. And so that's when I kind of went open about living with HIV. And actually, when I did that, when I started talking about living with HIV publicly, it felt like this huge relief. It felt like I was really unburdening myself of so much of that internalized stigma, that internalized shame. And the more that I was able to talk about it, the more that I just let it go. And it felt lighter and easier and happier and better for me. But to be outed by a reporter in 2012, that seems like something you would expect from the 90s. It wouldn't be acceptable practice. Obviously, I don't think it's acceptable practice. It was one of those situations where it was just like, oh, okay, well, the toothpaste is out of the tube now. There's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I haven't spoken to the journalists since. I do not think of them kindly. Were you aware of them before? Did they know you or did you know them? Or was it just Uh, that they'd... uh, They had called me up and we had spoken about various things HIV related. I hadn't actually spoken about my HIV status with this journalist. And then they said that they were doing a thing on gay parents or parents of gay people. So it was my fault. I mean, well, not my fault. My mother was doing work with an organization called Families Together London, 
she had actually set it up and it was a small organization which was supporting families of LGBT children. So this journalist said that they were doing a piece about families and and all of that. And I had willingly given my number. And then the journalist decided it would be interesting to get her reaction to my HIV status. So, wow. Wow. But it was ultimately, it was a good thing. My life got better afterwards. I saw someone the other day say something, blah, 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 I've achieved this despite HIV. And I was kind of thinking about it and I was thinking, well, I feel like a lot of the things that I have achieved are things which I feel proud of in my life. I've achieved because of HIV and not just things which I've done around HIV, but other things where HIV has pushed me to do things now rather than later or do things better rather than just okay. It's like, it's a real... One of those things that happens to you where it really makes you aware that life's not a dress rehearsal and you have to just go out and do it and do it as well as you possibly can. And I'm still learning that lesson because I still fuck things up the whole time, but I really want to do things well. I want to leave the world a better place. And perhaps if I hadn't been diagnosed with HIV, perhaps I wouldn't feel that same urgency. As you went public with this information, what was the reaction from the the article that you wrote from people that you knew from people that you didn't know when i wrote that article and like submitting it and you know that thing where you kind of press send on the email and then you're like oh my god i just made the biggest mistake of my life i can't go back now you know that, that there was one time I, I was in brazil and and i did one of those uh zip lines thing literally as i leapt off the top of the mountain holding onto these this thing the guys who worked the the, the line shouted something at me and i'm like it's a better not be don't jump <laughs> Um, so I guess it was a little bit that feeling, you know, I pressed send and it's like, it's done now for good or bad. It's done. Um, let's just hope this is the right decision, but actually it really felt like it was the right decision. As soon as it came out, things felt easier. Things got better, but there was this kind of odd thing that actually I kind of told the world before I told some of my closest friends. And so some of my closest friends found out because they read about it in a magazine. I, I had a few kind of funny conversations. And I mean, yeah, there was one friend who, who doesn't live in London. So I, you know, I was just talking to her on the telephone and she said, and I was like, oh, how are you? And she said, oh, it's been a really weird week. I found out that one of my friends, and then she stopped. <laughs> <laughs> you were just about to tell me that you found out about me and then you realised you were talking to me. <laughs> but especially as I've grown in confidence about it, I think it's kind of become easy. And then a lot of those friends, I mean, like kind of my straight friends who perhaps don't know anyone else who's living with HIV, they kind of got involved in it and they can like know about things like U equals U, which is undetectable means untransmittable means that we can't pass the virus on doing sex, blah, 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 say it very quickly. And it's kind of quite fun to see them kind of advocating for those messages and kind of like tackling stigma themselves in their own lives. I was on holiday last week and at dinner with some friends of friends and, you know, kind of we were chatting to them. And I just kind of dropped the fact that I was living with HIV very casually into the conversation, but kind of just shamelessly. And this was, you know, kind of a middle-aged, very middle-class 
nice couple, nice heterosexual couple. And it was really nice. I felt, don't know what their interpretation would be, but it felt that I said it with such brazen, shameless confidence that they realized that this was not something which they had to put their concerned face on for. Like you go, oh, I'm living with HIV. And you go, oh, and they put their head to one side and you're like, oh, no, it's not like that, really. I had someone <laughs> say to me the other day, they said, oh, my God, you, you're like, but you look like as fit as someone who doesn't have HIV. I'm like, oh, honey, I'm much fitter than most people who don't have <laughs> HIV. <laughs> Are you tired of listening to the same playlists over and over again? Are you ready for something new? Discover the latest music from LGBTQIA musicians on Homo Ground. There's so much music ready for you to devour, like this song by Carl X. What are you waiting for? Visit homoground.com or search Homo Ground on your favorite podcast app. Same ground, different sound. You're on Homo Ground. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It was a bit of a trope. I don't know if this was just the bitchy people that I hung around with, but if you saw someone suddenly get really buff, the first assumption would be, have they got HIV? Because it was almost the knee-jerk reaction was to go and get buff so you could kind of be like, look at me, I'm all fit. I'm actually really healthy. Look how healthy I am. When when was that? Well, I moved to London in 2007, so kind of like then-ish. For, yeah, 2007, 2010, that kind of... Because I think that's interesting because I remember that kind of in, in, in the 90s, and it wasn't necessarily people who were living with HIV, but like a lot of gay men got buff and it felt like it was it was almost like the gym equivalent of I'm clean UB2 kind of thing. It was almost like a way of saying, oh, it's not me. Or even though obviously people living with HIV could get buff just as much as people who weren't living with HIV. It was an, a side issue. That was in the days before we had treatment. I mean, I guess it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I think lots of us get fit because, you know, we get old and our face no longer is our fortune. So you just have to, like, distract. My sister-in-law wears a push-up. You distract your sister-in-law? No, no. My sister-in-law, who is um, uh, getting older, um, she would deny it. When I first met her, she was older than me, but um, that's no longer (laughs) the case. But she, every time she puts on a bit of weight, she just wears a push-up bra. And she's like, no one notices the waist when, the, when they've got the breast in the face. <laughs> See, I do the same. I've got quite enjoyable man tits. And I, I do joke occasionally that if they're big enough, they, they stand out more than the belly, so no one notices. <laughs> so was there anything in particular that drove you to wanting to be more of an activist and wanting to not only be out there in public, but actively helping other people and showing that there were ways to do this? Um, I think 
I use the word stigma sometimes because people do use the word. It's the knee-jerk word which people use to describe how people living with HIV are vilified or feared. But actually, I feel more comfortable talking about fear and ignorance because I think that's where it comes from. And I think so much of that fear and ignorance that people have about HIV and about people living with HIV is based on those old images of HIV. Well, I mean, the iceberg and the tombstone, but also kind of Tom Hanks in Philadelphia and those kind of images of, of death and dying. And there was back in the 90s, there was this Benetton advert, which was featured the moment, as it were, that someone died of, of, of AIDS surrounded by the family. And they had kind of slightly photoshopped it. So he looked a little bit more like Jesus. It was very dodgy. But those images, those kind of victimy images were what the narrative was still about. And I felt that, that that in itself created barriers to HIV testing. And obviously, if people aren't tested, then they can't go on the treatment. And if they're not on treatment and they have HIV, then they continue to pass the virus on. So, you know, actually testing is such a crucial part of HIV prevention because if we get people tested, get them on treatment, they will cease to be infectious we end the epidemic. And I felt that tackling that stigma, tackling that fear and ignorance was such a crucial thing to do. And one of the ways we could do it is by saying, well, look, HIV has changed. You can live well, you can feel good, you can not just survive, but you can thrive with the virus. We needed to break it down because I lived through Section 28 and all of that. And and I remember how it was in the years before Section 28 and, you know, in all those years when we had the unequal age of consent where we weren't allowed to get married. And actually Section 28 galvanised us as a community, or at least that's my memory of it. And it's certainly what made me come out as gay in a kind of public way. And we saw with Section 28 and we saw with people coming out that when people saw that they had LGBTQI plus people in their families and in their workplace and in their church and you know down the barbers, that we weren't that different and we weren't anything to be afraid of. And that changed society and that changed attitudes and eventually that changed the law. And I felt that we, we needed to do the same thing around HIV, that we needed to make sure that people knew that they knew people who had HIV. Because when you know us, we're not scary or frightening. We're just like redonkulously sexy, which of course is a bit of a distraction. It's a burden, I know. Oh, I've got broad shoulders. <laughs> when I look back on it now, I think, God, that's an enormous challenge that we faced and and although the story i told kind of you know tells the story of how i had sex before hiv it was just that one time and the rest of my sex life was in the shadow of hiv and aids and very much in the latter half of the 80s and throughout the 90s until there was effective treatment in 1998 i just went to a lot of funerals i went to more funerals in my 20s than I did in my 30s or 40s or have done so far in my 50s. It was just a part of our lives. And people responded in different ways. And some people would run away from people living with HIV, try and get them out of their lives. And other people got angry and got organized. And I like to think that I played some small part in that. We weren't just going to sit down while our friends were dying. There was that pain and that hurt and that grief, 
but there was joy and there were drugs and there was <laughs> dancing and there was crazy sex with crazy people and hilarious situations which you like look back on and go i can't believe that we did that i can't believe that my friend who woke up in crystal palace and looked at the tower and thought he was in france because <laughs> he was that out of his head um, <laughs> And had to he called me up and he's like, I think I'm in France. And I'm like, Do you have your passport on you? And he's like, No, you're probably not in France. <laughs> or, you know, I went to LA. Some some bloke who I picked up in a bar invited me to go to LA and I didn't know him and he just like flew me out to LA to um meet all of his Hollywood friends and that was crazy. <laughs> so you know there was just it was messy and it was fun and it was stupid and i think sometimes we parted so hard because life was so precious what would your advice be to someone who is keen to get involved to get organized who perhaps doesn't know where to start well there's various charities you can volunteer for the charity i used to work for gmfa which is now part of uh, Hero, the Health Equality and Rights Organization, they're always looking for volunteers. Volunteers are needed for other charities like the food chain. That's one way you can help out. But I think it's more about the way you live your life. You know, make sure that you live your life in a way which makes things better for other people. That's about not bullying people. That's about recognizing the importance of of, of truth, sometimes science. That's about calling out people when they behave badly in a kind and constructive way. And that's how we make the world better. And fuck's sake, I mean, you look at the way the state of the world right now. And so we need to look at how we make the world better by being better. So that would be my advice. Be good. Is there anything you'd like to plug while you're here? Let's pay some bills. I mean, what I will say is, please, if you are unaware of U equals U, which is undetectable, means untransmittable, which is the absolute scientific certainty we have now that when someone is on effective HIV treatment, they cannot pass the virus on to their sexual partners. This is a game changer in terms of tackling that fear and ignorance that still people living with HIV face. Um, so tell people, if you've only just learned this, tell someone else. If ever someone talks about HIV, work that into the conversation. That would be the thing that I would plug because that's going to help make things better. If you need to get more information about HIV, I work for NAM, who publish AIDS Map. It's a website with all of the information and news about HIV and AIDS for people all around the world. So go to AIDSMap.com, meet all your information needs there. If you are so moved by the sheer excellence of the information you find there that you want to make a small donation to NAM, you'll find it easy to donate uh, on every page. And I guess if I was going to plug that, I will plug that. Otherwise, Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. My Instagram's pretty pathetic, but my Twitter is brilliant. It is very good. And how can the people find you on Twitter to follow you then? At Matthew underscore Hudson and on Instagram at Matthew Hudson London. 
That was probably true. The multi-award winning storytelling podcast created to remind all of our queer siblings that we are none of us alone. If you like what you heard and you want me to keep doing it, you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash probably true. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 